My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, the story podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 178, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, Isaiah 59 and 60, and Ezekiel 17 through 19. Isaiah 59. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken falsely, and your tongues muttered wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die, and when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their way. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks along them will know peace. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none. For deliverance, but it is far away. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. Rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, inciting revolt and oppression. Uttering lies our hearts have conceived, so justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak, according to what they have done. So will he repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord. And from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit, who is on you, 
will not depart from you, and my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children, and on the lips of their descendants, from this time on and forever, says the Lord. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the richest of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephath and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Kedar's flocks will gather to you. The rams of Zebaioth will serve you. They will accept as offerings on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple. Who are these that fly along like clouds, like doves to their nests? Surely the islands look to me. In the lead are the ships of Tarshish. Bring your children from afar with their silver and gold to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Foreigners will rebuild your walls, and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I struck you, in favor I will show you compassion. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut, day or night, so that people may bring you to the wealth of the nations. Their kings led in triumphal procession. For the nation, our kingdom, that will not serve you will perish. It will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the fir, and the cypress together, to adorn my sanctuary, and I will glorify the place for my feet. The children of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Although you have been forsaken and hated with no one traveling through, I will make you the everlasting pride and the joy of all generations. You will drink the milk of nations and be nursed at royal breasts. Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring you gold and silver in place of iron. Instead of wood, I will bring you bronze and iron in place of stones. I will make peace your governor and well-being your ruler. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Then all your people will be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands, for the display of my splendor. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will do this swiftly. Ezekiel 17 The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set forth an allegory and tell it to the Israelites as a parable. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, a great eagle with powerful wings, long feathers and full plumage of varied colors came to Lebanon. Take hold of the top of a cedar. He broke off its topmost shoot and carried it away to a land of merchants, where he planted it in a city of traders. He took one of the seedlings of the land and put it in fertile soil. He planted it like a willow by abundant water, 
and it sprouted and became a low, spreading vine. Its branches turned toward him, but its root remained under it. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out leafy boughs. But there was another great eagle with powerful wings and full plumage. The vine now sent out its roots toward him from that plot where it was planted and stretched out its branch to him for water. It had been planted in good soil by abundant waters so that it would produce branches, bear fruit, and become a splendid vine. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, will it thrive? Will it not be uprooted and stripped of its fruit so that it withers? All its new growth will wither. It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it up by the roots. It has been planted, but will it thrive? Will it not wither completely when the east wind strikes it, wither away in the plot where it grew? Then the word of the Lord came to me, say to this rebellious people, do not know what these people mean. Say to them, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and carried off her king and her nobles, bringing them back with him to Babylon. Then he took a member of the royal family and made a treaty with him, putting him under oath. He also carried away the leading men of the land, so that the kingdom, who would be brought low, unable to rise again, surviving only by keeping his treaty. But the king rebelled against him by sending his envoys to Egypt to get horses and a large army. Will he succeed? Will he who does such thing escape? Will he break the treaty and yet escape? As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, he shall die in Babylon, in the land of the king who put him on the throne, whose oath is despised and whose treaty is broke. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great horde will be of no help to him in war. When ramps are built and sieges works erected to destroy many people, he despises the oath but breaks the covenant because he has given his hand and pledge and yet did all these things he shall not escape. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, as surely as I live, I will repay him for despising my oath and breaking my covenant. I will spread my net for him and he will be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon and execute judgment on him there because he was unfaithful to me. All his choice troops will fall by the sword, and their survivors will be scattered to the winds. Then you will know that I am the Lord, have spoken. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from its topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the forest will know that I am the Lord. Bring down the tall tree and make the low tree grow tall. I dry up the green trees and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. 18. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel, for everyone belongs to me. The parents, as well as the children, both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. Suppose there is a righteous man who does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look at the idols of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or have sexual relations with a woman during her period. He does not oppress anyone but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend to them at interest or take a profit for them. He withholds his hand from doing wrong and judges 
fairly between two parties. He follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. That man is righteous. He will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord. Suppose he has a violent son who sheds blood or does any of these other things. Though the father has done none of them, he eats at the mountain shrines, he defiles his neighbor's wife, he oppresses the poor and needy, he commits robbery, he does not return what he took in pledge, he looks to the idols, he does detestable things, he lends an interest and takes a profit. Will such a man live? He will not, because he has done all these detestable things. He is to be put to death, his blood will be on his own head. But suppose this son has a son who sees all the sins his father committed, and though he sees them, he does not do such things. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. He does not oppress anyone or require a pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He withholds his hand from mistreating the poor and takes no interest or profit from them. He keeps my law and follows my decree. He will not die for his father's sin. He will surely live. But his father will die for his own sin because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong among his people. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? Since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. But if a wicked person turns away from all the sins they have committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, that person will surely live. They will not die. None of the offenses they have committed will be remembered against them because of the righteous things they have done. They will live. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, Am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? But if a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked person does, will they live? None of the righteous things that person has done will be remembered because of the unfaithfulness they are guilty of and because of the sins they have committed. They will die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear you, Israelites. Is my way unjust? Is it not your way that are unjust? If a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin, they will die for it. Because of the sin they have committed, they will die. But if a wicked person turns away from the wickedness they have committed and does what is just and right, they will save their life. Because they consider all the offenses they have committed and turn away from them, that person will surely live. They will not die. Yet the Israelites say, the way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust, people of Israel? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Take up a lament concerning the princes of Israel and say, What a lioness was your mother among the lions. She lay down among them and reared her cubs. She brought up one of her cubs and he became a strong lion. He learned to tear the prey and he became a man-eater. The nations heard about him and he was trapped in their pit. They led him with hooks to the land of Egypt. When she saw her hope unfulfilled, her expectations gone, she took another of her cubs and made him a strong lion. 
He prowled among the lions, for he was now a strong lion. He learned to tear the prey, and he became a man-eater. He broke down their strongholds and devastated their towns. The land and all who were in it were terrified by his roaring. Then the nations came against him, those from regions round about. They spread their net for him, and he was trapped in their pit. With hooks, they pulled him into a cage and brought him to the king of Babylon. They put him in prison, so he roar was heard no longer on the mountains of Israel. Your mother was like a vine in your vineyard, planted by the water. It was fruitful and full of branches because of abundant water. Its branches were strong, fit for a ruler's scepter. It towered high above the thick foliage, conspicuous for its height and for its many branches. But it was uprooted in fury and thrown to the ground. The east wind made it shrivel. It was stripped of its fruits. Its strong branches withered and fire consumed them. Now it is planted in the desert in a dry and thirsty land. Fire spread from one of its main branches and consumed its fruit. No branch is left on it, fit for a ruler's scepter. This is a lament and is to be used as a lament. So we read Isaiah 59 and 60 today, and Dr. Mackey describes Isaiah 56 through 66, which is the end of the book, as the story of the servant inheriting the messianic kingdom, a new Jerusalem for the poor and the outcast, a place of justice and mercy, righteousness, a place of blessing to be a blessing. But first, we read in chapter 59, a long prayer of repentance. There is a grief, an agony, an ownership, a recognition of that in our lives. We'll read a similar prayer again in chapter 63. It's a prayer for forgiveness, atonement, rescue, redemption. Because as we've been reading, we not only need that, we in this process need God to give us a new heart, a new spirit, and then the restoration of the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. There's also a contrast we are seeing with those that persecute, referenced as the wicked, and the servant, who is humble, who repents and owns their evil, and will be forgiven, not removed, but given a renewed creation, a new Jerusalem. In Ezekiel 17, we continue to read the prophet's creative way of using parable and allegory to communicate God's message to a stiff-necked people, which we've read a few times before. And as Marty Solomon says, the determined stubbornness for God is what seems to drive Ezekiel, which means strength, and it's what leads the Israelites astray, the stiff neck. It's this do-it-my-way attitude, but it is also that same spirit of grit, endurance, strength, and courage that will be needed to help them endure and hold fast to the hope and to remember who God is and what He is doing. We read about Ezekiel pronouncing God's judgment of Israel in the story of a burn stick that is used up or useless and a rebellious wife who was more like a prostitute in that story. And today, we read in Ezekiel 19 about a dangerous lion. More specifically, Dr. Daniel Block describes Ezekiel 17 as the eagle and the vine fable. Remember, fables are illustrative stories meant to convey true and meaningful spiritual and moral lessons. To us, these parables or fables may be harder to understand in metaphor and allegorical choice. But think about the way we talk today. We might say something weighs a ton. I think I've used that analogy before to convey that something is heavy. This doesn't mean we lied or the metaphoric statement isn't true. We would know it's an allegory or an image, a metaphor that conveys the thing we are talking about as being heavy, 
you can probably think of more than I can at the moment, but like having an anvil around your neck or something like that. Of course, we could use a parable and an allegory to lie or mislead someone. For example, if we knew something was lightweight, but we said it weighed a ton, we would be using the metaphor to mislead someone. People then and now can use parables and allegories towards whatever ends they like, politically, morally, spiritually. I think the point I'm trying to make is twofold. First, stories are parables, and we use other words like fables. All of these can and do, and in the case of the Bible, convey an important message of spiritual and moral truth. It's God's message. However, it is important to note that reading the metaphor in the form of a figure of speech or rhetoric, something abstract, as the truth instead of the things symbolically representing the truth, then the important and meaningful message, which was understood in the ancient context, it might be lost if we focus on making the metaphor the true part and not the message of the metaphor. These are important things to think about, not just in Ezekiel, but as we get further into the New Testament and examine parables, for example, that Jesus told and letters that Paul writes to the church, we're going to see parables, allegory, hyperbole, different things, tools used in literary form to convey messages, just like we use today, but in different ways in our time and in other cultures they use other times. These tools and things aren't the problem. It's do we understand them or are we trying to put our way of reading things onto the text? So there'll be lots of things to think about. Okay, back to the eagle and the vine fable in chapter 17. We are reminded again, as Marty Solomon, Dr. Mackey, and Dr. Bach point out, Ezekiel used pantomime, drama, figures of speech to perhaps be entertaining, but grab attention and speak to the hardened hearts of his audience. As someone in marketing, I know that this is like a disruptive strategy when you do something kind of shocking and really bold to grab someone's attention that otherwise is preoccupied with other things and isn't interested. There is certainly caricature literary cartooning here, which requires interpretation. Dr. Block's Ezekiel commentary, which is truly awesome, offers various interpretations, but what does seem clear is that this wise and insightful counsel of Ezekiel is using eagles, a cedar, a vine stalk, and an east wind to employ known traditional ancient Near Eastern images to construct a word story that characterizes Judah, the southern kingdom's kings. The story method, instead of the direct method, pulls the audience in to figure out the meaning. More specifically, Dr. Block identifies four parts to this logical flow, this storytelling. The first being the fable itself and the first 10 verses, then the link to the historical people and events in verses 11 to 18. Then theological connections and truth are made in verses 19 to 21, and in verses 22 to 24, again, we're talking about chapter 17, it speaks to the ideal, the future, and restoration. One of the most important theological points I think Dr. Block drew out was the lesson of people, us, responding to the symptoms in crisis, because remember, he's talking to an exiled people. So people, us responding to the symptoms in crisis. We try to alleviate them and focus on the experience and whether we deserve it instead of responding to the crisis with an according, with an accounting to, with the cause. Dr. Block notes, like Zedekiah, human goals of freedom may be noble, like when the Judeans attempted to procure aid from Egypt, and we've read before about alliances through economics and marriage that they used to try to create peace. But 
when these strategies are employed and they ignore their moral and spiritual decline and do not seek repentance to return or be redeemed or restored by God, they basically just leave them out of it. God must be taken seriously in all aspects of life. Covenants and oaths are binding always. There is no hall passes or delineation between like, oh, this is political, no, this is spiritual, or between the work week and Sunday when it comes to fidelity and allegiance to the Lord. It's transformational and should transcend all aspects of our life, business, personal, as a consumer, as an employer, person in business, in finance and investing, all of it. We learn from this story that Yahweh remains sovereign over history and that humans may violate the commitment, the covenant, over and over. But as we've learned before, Yahweh remains true to his word. Yes, there is a contingent and there will be retribution. And Babylon will be an agent in delivering judgment in this case. But God is keeping his promise by going with them and restoring shalom, not only for his people, but now the whole world. So his unabounding love and mercy are still being made evident. Ezekiel 18 is interesting. Dr. Block describes it as Ezekiel addressing a dispute about God's judgment and holds that some biblical scholars look at this contribution by Ezekiel as one of the most important to Israelite theology regarding the doctrine of individual responsibility. Yes, we have read this before, and we have also read about the sin and judgment being corporal or familial, remember being passed down three generations, but lavish, unfailing love and mercy for a thousand generations. Remember that from Exodus and Deuteronomy, I think. Dr. Block points out that overemphasizing Ezekiel's identification of the individual, which is clearly important and being made, but missing the corporal and familiar reference and the call to the exilic community whose teeth are set on edge, we read in verse 2 of chapter 8. They are being issued as a whole, a call to repentance, the whole group. Ezekiel is responding to the despondence and the charge against God of divine unfairness, and his rebuttal method draws from the priestly, legal, or theocratic Israelite tradition, somewhat like Moses, presenting the way of life and the way of death and appealing to them to choose the way of life because their situation invokes a verdict, a fate that has receipts, like the laundry list of things they did wrong, if you will. But instead of asking if God is good, and Dr. Block calls it theologizing or thinking about the thinking of God and judging its justness, to instead repent of their and our rebellious ways and reorder our lives, return to Shema, to Torah, the same set of principles that leads to divine judgment, offers the only hope for rescue, redemption, restoration, a way into the future that not only spares death, but leads to flourishing and shalom. So it's not that we can't ask the question, but when we get lost down that rabbit hole, And then we also don't acknowledge what we're doing in our thinking. I think it's like a dangerous way to drift and justify defection in a very tragic way. Ezekiel 19 is the story of, some call it, lament for the Davidic dynasty, like a sadness, a grieving for the era of David. Or a fable using plants and animals as if they were people using parody and rhetoric as a response to the people's thinking that God had suspended the covenant Yahweh made with David because the situation, being in exile, 
is not what they thought it should be or wanted. So Ezekiel's responding to a group of people, I guess, believing and grieving over the past, thinking it's all over. But Dr. Block describes Ezekiel's use of the lion here as referencing Jacob's blessing of Judah in Genesis 49 verses 8 and 9. The lion is a symbol of rule, and Ezekiel's two lions in his story are both predatory, terrorizing their subjects. But we've heard lion referenced other ways too. And this goes against what we've been reading since Genesis 1 about what it means to rule. So what are we learning? Well, God is responding to ruthless leadership that causes the people to become corrupt and that the promises of God stand and they are passed to future ancestors, but they do not guarantee divine blessing for their descendants. This sparks my memory because I think sometimes we read, for example, Jeremiah 29, 11, to suggest that if we love God, He will make sure nothing goes wrong for us and we are blessed. We have perfect clarity of vision. We have wealth, happiness, success. But the culture rule, if we go back to Genesis 1, which is purpose in ruling, filling, subduing, and it's Hebrew language, is to do this with justice and righteousness. There is an act of service involved to God, to others, to creation. This is leadership, not dynastic dislocated leaders that seek power and succession and security for themselves with regards to others, they only use them for their own purposes. Lastly, Dr. Block notes a theological implication for this story is the presence of God's chosen representative, which is no substitute for personal commitment to God. This is really important, and there's a lot of really good insights in here, but I'll tell you, it's really hard to understand when you're reading through ancient Near Eastern parables and metaphors and allegory. So Dr. Daniel Block offers incredible insights and breaks down things in much greater depth. So if you're at Biola, it's in our library. Definitely go borrow that. I think it's also sold on Amazon and probably a few other places. And as I might have mentioned before, the Bible Project is going to be offering a class on Ezekiel coming in 2024, which I would encourage you to sign up for now. Pray for me. I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.